Do you know any sad victory? Yes, sad victory. While most victories are happy and glad, there are sometimes sad victories. That's why, that's what we will reflect on today. We've been studying tragedies of King David for 12 weeks this summer. The last six, six episodes of a series has to do with Absalom. He's a handsome and horrible son. Today's lesson is the last episode of his troubled, tragic life. Since the story is long and repetitive and complex, I'm going to describe the story in the three main divisions, and then we will reflect on the lingering meaning of the story. So first I'm going to use the acronym SAD, S-A-D, SAD, and then we'll reflect on the biblical spiritual meaning of the story for us as a conclusion. So let's look at the first letter of a SAD, S. S stands for strange request of the king. For that, let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1 to 5. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, third under the Joab's brother, Abishai, son of Zeruiah, and the third under the Ittai, the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the man said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they don't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best for you. So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units and of hundreds of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with a young man, Absalom, for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. Last week we saw David urgently fleeing from Jerusalem to evade rapidly approaching rebel army of Absalom. Today, David finally regrouped his army, and he divided his army into three groups. Two were led by his commander-in-chief, Joab, and his younger brother, Abishai. And the general of a third army was Itai the Gittai. Do you guys remember Itai the Gittai? You know, the Philistine, former Philistine warrior from Gath, who followed David with his 600 warriors. One small but significant fact about David's life was that many foreigners joined David and served him faithfully, like his bodyguard, the royal bodyguard, the Carathite and the Palathite in chapter 15. You have to recognize that Israel under David was not a monolithic or a mono-ethnic country. It was a multi-ethnic, kind of a melting pot, it was open to foreigners and welcome strangers. That's why the church or new Israel is supposed to be the community of God. And that's why the early Christians are proud of the name Catholics. Catholic, meaning the universal believers of God or universal followers of Christ. And for us, we are committed to be biblical Catholics. 
Okay? We are not Roman Catholic. We are biblical Catholics through the house church ministry. Now, David wanted to lead his army, but his men told him that your life is far more valuable than ours. Even more than half of our entire army and 10,000 soldiers. From that, some scholars estimated David's army to be around 20,000. We are not sure about that. But one thing is clear is that Absalom's army was much bigger and outnumbers David. He gathered army, entire nation. And David's commanders were actually very realistic that they saw a possibility of their defeat. So verse 3, they said, you must not go uh, with us. If we are forced to flee, if we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. And even if half of us die, they know this battle is a do or die, very difficult battle. The victory will be very, chance for victory is a slim. And they, but they're going to fight for it. The warriors, David, they truly love their king and willing to sacrifice their lives for him. To such a royal army. Today, David gave a very strange, very strange, almost a moral busting command. What did he say? Verse 5, the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And everyone heard David's strange request because all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. So as David's army was leaving the city to the battlefield, David was as a city guide and waving and wishing them, the, you know, wishing them well. And he said, fight well but gentle with my son. Fight well, gentle with my son. Fight well, gentle with my son. If you're the AB soldier at that moment, how would you feel about this strange, difficult command? If I were one of the soldiers, I feel I'm risking my neck for you and you want me to be gentle with your nasty son, Absalom, who caused all this trouble? Man, I quit. None of David's army why? Even though it was a king who commanded them, the words of the king was the words of the father. It's the words of a father. Absalom was a traitor and killer who deserved to be died. That would be justice. But he was a son whom his father David loved. And love demanded gentleness. Not because of Absalom deserved the gentleness. David said, for my sake, for sake of a father who loved him, who always saw him as a young man. You know, Hebrew word for young man, nara, is actually translated other passages like uh, child, lad, and boy. You know, do your parents see you always as a child, no matter how old you are? That's how David felt. Now, this is a King David's strange, so King David's strange command was a request and plea of a father. Now let's see what happened to Absalom in verse 6 and 9. So first, strange request of king. Second, is A, is the awful death of the rebel. So let's look at for that. Verse 6, David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There, Israel's troops were routed by David's men. And the casualties that they were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, 
and the forest swallowed up more men that day than their sword. That means there were more accidental deaths caused by terrain than actual military death caused by sword. This was not done supernaturally, but most likely done by militarily. You see, David's army and commanders, they're seasoned warriors and well-trained by David. Do you remember David was a master of guerrilla warfare? You know, that's one thing he got out of, you know, fighting, you know, I mean, evading from the, you know, King Saul. So David's, you know, warrior, they know how to use a terrain for the tactical advantages. And the next verse shows an example of what it meant the swallow, the, the, actually the forest swallowing Absalom's man. So look at the verse 9. Now Absalom happened to meet David's man. He was riding his mule. And as, he, as the mule went under the thick branch of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. If you wonder how in the world Absalom forgot to see the tree branches when he was riding, let me depict the scene. It was most likely Absalom was fleeing from David's men like a hell because many of his men already fell and died. So he was closely running, he's closely running away, evading David's soldiers. So he was looking back to check how close they are. And momentarily, he forgot where he was heading, and there was a sick branch, and he got cut, and the mule left. Actually, Hebrew text says that it's not his hair, but his head. So Hebrew text is a head, but most English translation made it hair. Of course, hair is a part of the head, so you can, you know, that justifies. But reason for that is they try to, you know, convey this biblical truth. The pride goes before Blank, prize goes before fall, or vanity goes before the fall. And do you know that uh, Absalom, the sexiest man of Israel, he was so proud of his hair that he had an annual hair cutting. Is a, you know, he, had a, he cut hair once a year and waited, and he made a you know, PR you know, stunt. And today, the biblical writers... Or oh, I'm English translators, they try to somehow kind of connect this pride to his fall in a poetic way. So they translated his hair, but it's his head. But he was, whether it was a head or hair that made him to cut in the tree, he was embarrassingly dangling in the air. Actual Hebrew text said that he was suspended between heaven and earth. He was suspended between heaven and earth. So, simply put, Absalom became human piñata. Do you guys know what piñata is? He became a human piñata. You know, and they couldn't get out. And the one of the David's soldiers reported this to Joab, and Joab did not hesitate to Absalom right away. Yes, Joab clearly disobeyed the king's order to treat the young man Absalom kindly. He could have easily captured Absalom and bring him to David, but Joab treated Absalom in the most awful way. So look at the verse 14. Joab said, 
I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took the three javelins, three javelins in his hand, plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And the ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. I want us to know clearly, Joab did not quickly kill Absalom today. You know what Joab did today? He actually tortured Absalom. He tortured Absalom. How do we know? Why did he take three javelins? Guys are already, you know, Pinara, you just need a one javelin to just kill him. Reason Joab took the three javelins is that he probably set the, each one of the javelins around the Absalom, the human Pinara, and the taunting him. And, uh, you know, so he just appears one side and, uh, you know, Absalom says, ouch, ooh, and then moves and he puts another one, ooh, ooh, and then now each move is a pain. He was enjoying killing Absalom. Horrible, torturous killing. Then he ordered his bodyguard to finish him off at the end. Why did Joab kill Absalom in this awful way? Those of you who have been reading the, you know, the, in the story, you know why. Because Joab was paying back all the pain and anger that Absalom caused him in the past. Do you remember it was Joab who asked King David to bring back the Absalom from exile after he killed his you know, half-brother Amnon and fled, right? And after he came back to Israel, you know, instead of waiting for King's you know, a call, Absalom was very impatient. He burned the barley, you know, filled up Joab. So Joab has to, you know, once again ask the king to restore. And after all that, what did you know, Absalom did? He rebelled against the king. So Joab lost his credibility. You know, his advice, you know, got the whole his, the, the country in trouble. So today, Joab was seeking revenge and justice. He probably thought that as long as this incorrigible prince Absalom is alive, David's kingdom will be always in jeopardy. And I know David has still soft heart for this, this, um, this idiotic son. Joab knew what justice demanded, and he was convicted of serving the full justice today. Now, verse 16. Then Joab sounded a trumpet, and the uh, troops stopped pursuing Israel. For Joab halted them. They took the Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest. Actually, Hebrew text is actually a cave. It's a cavern. Cavern. Piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, the old Israel fled to their home. So, rebellion is quelled. Absalom was given a nasty an anonymous burial. The burial he received is like a burial for sinners, like Achan in the Joshua chapter 7, you know, who lied, who stole. Read Joshua 7 if you don't know. And, the, you know, also king of Ai in Joshua chapter 8 received the same burial. Such was the tragic legacy of Absalom. Think about Absalom for a minute. He was born as a prince much more best-looking man in Israel. 
and much more. He had a loving father who's still willing to forgive him all of his sins and crimes. So Absalom's death was a doubly tragic because this was his own doing. His pride and self-righteousness ruined his original destination as a possible crown prince. And he was forever remembered as a rebel son who betrayed his father and the country. Now let's see the David's reaction to Absalom's death. That is the final number three of the acronym, Disconsolate Victory. Look at the verse 19. Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hands of the enemies. You're not the one to take the news today, Joab told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today because king's son is dead. Then Joab said to a Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Clearly, Joab knew the significance of Absalom's death to David. So when Ahimaaz, the son of a Zadok priest, was eager to inform David about the victory, Joab told him the death of Absalom was a good news to the kingdom, but not to the king. So today is not the day that uh, for you, let me just send the Cushite. Cushite is an ancient name for Egyptian. But Ahimaaz was so excited about this, you know, uh, this, uh, heart, I mean, this incredible victory that he insisted, I want to go, I want to go. So finally, Joab said, yeah, okay, you go. So he left late, but he outran the Cushite. Now look at the verse 28. Then the Ahimaaz called out to the king, all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who have lifted their hands against my lord the king. The king asked, Is young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, uh, your servant, but I don't know what it was. This is a little uh, comical scene. I must expected David to rejoice greatly when he gave the news that a God vindicated you. We vanquished our rebel armies. Yay, we're going back to Jerusalem. But David, instead of bursting into the praise God, he asked Amos about the safety of Absalom. And Amos remembered the Joab's word. So what did Amos do? He gave a very unambiguous answer. I saw some kind of great confusion. I don't know what that it was. You know, he lied to the king. Why? Because he saw king was still hoping something more than victory. I must saw that David was looking for Something more than victory. For David, there was something more important than victory. That is safety of his son. Verse 30. The king said, stand aside, wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there, and the Cushite arrived and said, My lord, the king, hear the good news. 
The Lord has vindicated you today by the devil delivering you from the hands of all those rose up against you. King asked the Cushai, Is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushai replied, May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up, rise up to harm you be like that young man. Finally, David found out about the death of Absalom. And David's reaction to the news, so-called good news, is described in a verse, one of the most moving verses in the entire Bible. So look at the verse 3. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. To David today, the good news of a victory was not the gospel that he was hoping for. It was a disconsolate victory. It was a devastating, disheartening victory. Paradoxically, today's victory is the saddest victory in his life. He couldn't bear the sadness because everyone else is rejoicing. So he went into a private room and began to mourn for his son Absalom. And David wailed there, calling Absalom, my son, five times, five times. Look at it, five times. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Nowhere in the Bible we see someone's name is uh, you know, called five times. This is the only time in the Bible. And nowhere in the Bible we see this kind of deep grief and heart-wrenching cries. There have been many attempts to interpret the David's grief. The distress of a David the father is obvious. But should this be the judge as a weakness in David the king, as a Joab thought, or even self selfishness or sentimental love of a failed father? What do you think? How do you take this grief of David? There is an American uh, songwriter, singer-songwriter from Alabama named uh, Pierce Pettis. It's now well-known, but uh, his songs are cool. In 1996, he published a song titled Absalom, 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 and you can check it out in the YouTube. I really like the song. I want to play, but, uh, you know, if there was a, a lyrics below it, you know, it would be nice, but some of you, especially recent comers from East, you don't understand the southern draw, so I skipped it. But anyway, listen to the lyrics. I think, you know, Pierce uh, Pettis captures the broken heart of David. He really understands the spirit of an agonizing father. He said this, Come and smear me with the branches of that tree. He sobbed deep in the innocent blood to make me clean. Let an old man's broken bones once more rejoice. Oh, Absalom, you are my little boy. You are a laughing boy who bounced upon my knee. You learn to play the harp and use a shepherd's sling. Always watching, my impressionable son. Oh, Absalom, what have I done? You are watching when I took a good man's wife and gave the orders for his murder. Just cover up the crime. All vanity, cruel arrogance, and greed. Oh, Absalom, 
you learned it all from me. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, caught in the tangles of a deceit, hanging lifeless from the tree. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, my son, caught by the tangles of your hair, the fruit of my own sins to bear, O Absalom. In the background, the song is the alcoholic father grieving when he found out his son died of a drug overdose, as of blaming himself. He sees him in the part of his son's death. David cried for Absalom because he saw his sin in Absalom's sin today. David saw Absalom's fall, in Absalom's fall, his own fall. That was that it was a David's sin and failure of adultery and murder that entangled Absalom's heart with ambitions and violence. So David's cry confesses that he was that cursed tree to Absalom, and Absalom was a fruit of David's unfaithfulness and sin. So David said, My sin bore your sin. Oh, my son Absalom, my sin killed you. Absalom, oh, my son. Now, I want us to reflect on the lingering meanings of the story. That's the, that's the second part. This is a conclusion. So wake up and listen very carefully. You know, this lingering meaning of the story, I call it the shadow of a David's sad victory. And as we sort it out, I hope that we see this shadow actually reaching us. So, about the clearing the shadow of a David's victory here, the tragedies of a David reveals three important truths about God and us. Three important truths about God, God and about us. Number one, David's cry reveals the cry of our Heavenly Father. David's cry reveals the cry of our Heavenly Father. Just as David cried for the death of Absalom, Bible said, our God cries for death of every sinner. So look at the Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take my, no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? David's pain illustrates God's pain for unrepentant sinners. You know, God does not delight in death of wicked people because, above all, God is love. Bible says God is love and our God is God of love. And more than anything, our God is our creator, meaning he is our ultimate father. And to a father, nothing more important than his children. No matter how good or bad their children the safety of their children matters most to the father. Nicholas Walter Stroff uh, was a, a theologian and professor, former f- professor at Yale Divinity School. He lost his uh, young firstborn, uh, college-aged son, at the uh, rock climbing, mountain climbing, uh, rock climbing accident in, in Switzerland. He wrote a classic called Lament for Son. In that book, he said something that really uh, enlightening, almost, you know. 
opening, enlightening, my, enlightening. So listen to this quote. It is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. I always thought this meant that no one could see God's splendor and live. A friend said perhaps it meant that no one could see sorrow and live. No one can see God's sorrow and live. I agree with the Walter Stroff. It was not a God's glory, but God's grief, which is unbearable to us. Of course, how can we, the finite beings, fathom the grief of infinite God? Just as our God grieves for death of everyone, especially even wicked and unrepented, we, best, we must remember, you and I matter to God. Each one of us matter to God. Amen? Second truth the story reveals is this. David's conundrum was cleared by Christ. David's conundrum was cleared by Christ. What was David's conundrum or problem? David today had a, a deadlock of love and justice. His desire for love and Joab's demand for justice they could not be reconciled. It collided. Today's story illustrates the impasse between love and justice. And by the way, David and Israel were not only with the problem of love versus justice. Every nation, every you know, community has this conundrum. This uh, some kind of insoluble tension between justice and love. You know, for instance, right-wing politics they tend to emphasize our righteousness and justice and responsibility. And their main thing is that everybody should get what they deserve. That's the you know, right-wing politics you know, mantra. On the other hand, left-wing politics, they tend to care for the compassion and kindness. It's all about helping people in ways that they do not deserve but they need. Isn't that what we saw last week when the Biden administration canceled the college loans? Do you agree with that? That shows, whether you agree or disagree, it shows your political, you know, whatever, you know, tendency. In the world plagued by human sin, love and justice do not meet as a friend. They always collide. Now, how do we solve this insoluble tension and the impregnable, you know, conundrum? Today, David's cry actually reveals a question and an answer at the same time. David wished that if only I had died instead of you. If only I had died instead of you. If David died and sacrificed his life for Absalom, David thought he could atone Absalom's sin and life. But David didn't and couldn't. And you need to know this. What King David couldn't do today was done by Son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life ransom for many. Actually, the better translation, ransom, ransom instead of many people. I hope you notice the similarity between Absalom's death and Jesus' death today. Both were hanging in trees. Both were tortured and brutally killed. 
Both were buried in a cave or pit covered by stones. You know, Mark chapter 15, verse 46, that when they put the Jesus, they rolled up a stone against the entrance of his tomb. So Jesus received, a, you know, you know similar. The only difference between the Absalom and Jesus was that the Absalom died because of a sin and rebellion, but Jesus died because of a, our sin and rebellion. And there, Jesus met the demand of a justice with a sacrificial love. Do you see that? Jesus did what David couldn't do. And the last point, last you know, lesson that we need to learn from today's story is uh, we are all Absalom. We are all Absalom. What do I mean that all of us are Absalom? Like Absalom, we have a father. Like Absalom's father, our ultimate father, God is a king, actually king of kings and lord of the lord. And our God created us fearfully, wonderfully in his image. Like Absalom, he, in, we, he endowed us with the privileges. God made us to be his image bearer. We are made with the infinite capacity for joy and love. But like Absalom, we rebelled against God and chose our own path rather than his way. So Isaiah 53 verse 6 said that we all are like a sheep gone astray. Each of us has a turn to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, famous uh, Christian uh, thinker named uh, Francis Schaeffer once said this, beginning of a man's rebellion against God was and is the lack of a thankful heart. Francis Schaeffer said that the spirit of a rebellion or a cause and symptom of a rebellion is a ingratitude. Ingratitude. Are you grateful to God who you are today? Are you grateful to God for everything and every time? Do you recognize that you are nothing? You become nothing without God? You know, last week, Hejin, sharing this very hard, you know, difficult, sharing, honest, you know, sincere sharing about a struggle with a uh, bipolar disorder, made me realize that uh, how much God actually helped me with uh, my own bipolar disorder. Do you know that I have a bipolar disorder? Ask my wife, Jamie. I have a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in me. In, in that regard, I think we all have a bipolar you know, disorders. Only difference is that uh, mine or ours is mild and manageable, while some other people's, they are not. They need a heavy medication. And we take for granted. We take for granted. You know, Hajin said, coming to the church in person, you know, she, she takes it every day is a struggle, but every day she experiences the grace of God to sustain her. Have you felt that my day today is a special day because Almighty God loved me and sustained me? How many of you thanked her yesterday, Saturday, or even today? C.S. Lewis connects our rebellion to our, our, you know, 
our forgetfulness of our creaturely position and reality. So in his book, Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis, Lewis said this, this act of self-will on the part of a creature which constitutes an utter falseness to its true creaturely position is the only sin can be conceived as the fall. C.S. Lewis said, as we learned in the Cornerstone Bible study, the fall of Adam and Eve came when they want to or build or manage Garden of Eden in their own ways rather than God's ways. They want to have a Garden of Eden in their own terms instead of God's truth. How about us? Do you think you can reign your life better than God? Do you think, you know, you love yourself better than God? Because you graduate from college and graduate schools and they make your own living? Do you trust and seek your own desires and plans more than God's principles and purposes? You didn't make yourself. God did. You didn't make anything in this world. God did. God planned everything so you and I can exist today. So who can run our life better than God? Many times we are like Absalom, or they wills our own way instead of uh, thanking and relying on God's you know, principles and promises. We insist our pleasures and our plans. So today, let's repent. Let's really confess that, Lord, forgive me. I'm a to some degree, I'm an Absalom. Small, in my small rebellion, my small arrogance and selfishness, I'm an Absalom. And if you confess, I want, us to, I want you to also know this. If you can take a one thing out of today's story, I want you to take this. Just as Absalom was a far more important victory to David, you and I are very important to God. And to prove it, Son of God, the Son of David, came and died on the tree for you and me to live. Let's pray.